I'm Andy. And I'm Lev. And you're listening to Snakes in the Garden. Hi, this is Lev. Thanks for listening to Snakes in the Garden. For this episode, Andy and I will be joined on Zoom by Lucia Wiss, a colleague and good friend of mine. In our excitement about this conversation, we forgot to record our first couple of minutes. So Lucia will be starting us off by telling us a little bit about themselves, and then we'll jump right in. Well, good morning. Um, It's great to see you both. My name is Lucia Wiss. I am a mediator, a facilitator, a conflict resolution trainer. I'm currently working at a community mediation center. Uh, And I'm also a writer, a dancer, an Aikidoist, uh, a farmer. So my life is is full of many different things and I always want it to be more full. And I love thinking about how people fit together, how problems arise and are solved or not solved. I love swimming in the river of all the things. Yeah, you just kind of ooze that. I'm, I know our listeners can't perhaps experience you the way I am at the, in the moment, but I'm, I'm feeling that loud and clear from you, Lucia. Welcome to Snakes in the Garden. Thank you. We're, we're, we're very alike in our, in our interests. Would love to hear more. Well, I know that I'm sure Lev has some questions, but what I hope we get to is learning more about how you came to be uh, swimming in that river, so to speak. Mm. I really like the metaphor of of swimming in the river because it reminds me of, you know, like how you can never step into the same river twice, that the body of water is continuously moving and changing. The substance of what you encounter will always be different because of, you know, the entropy of the universe. And especially if you consider that river to be humans. Yeah, there's a lot of complexities to consider. I have some direction, although I don't really mind where this ends up. I think the best conversations are ones that are people honestly speaking their truth and going where their minds and hearts takes them. But um, I did have some thoughts about shadow work. That was something I I know you're like, wow, left field. But uh, Lucia, you really recently mentioned shadow work. uh, And I didn't get to hear too many thoughts of yours about what that meant for you and about where that was taking you. Uh, Andy has also been involved in some shadow work with a specific practitioner. And I myself, Andy kind of explained it in a similar way earlier where he was conscious of the concept of the shadow, aware of it due to context clues, but had not really received the definition or instruction until recently that would guide him in that work. And I've been reading, I don't know if this will come through clear in the video, but meeting the shadow I'll read this. It's the hidden power of the dark side of human nature, which of course deeply appeals to me. Uh, This is a collection of essays from multiple contributors, uh, but it's all based, some are by Carl Jung himself, and some are based on students or people who have studied his philosophy and have continued or adapted it in some kind of meaningful way about the shadow. Um, And it's very like consciousness, spiritual in some senses, and it's very concrete and relationships based in other senses about how this is your, this is how your shadow manifests. This is what it means. Andy, maybe this would be a good time to introduce the work that you do and that we've been doing and 
how you came into this idea of shadow work recently? Sure. I've been a government employee for a very long time, a manager in our state care system. And when I made the decision to begin my own enterprise and do more of what I loved and less of what I think interferes with good work in a bureaucracy, there's certainly a lot of that. When I was going to make that jump, I have a history of, well, let me rephrase that. In my history, I've made attempts at working for myself a couple of times, and they weren't unsuccessful, but they weren't very long-term. And I had, I owned a couple of different organizations and then ultimately made the decision after encountering the consequences of some bad decisions to go to work for the man, so to speak, you know, and becoming a government employee. And Mm -hmm. um, that arguably was my period of being in the wilderness, so to speak. And, And now I've come back to this notion of doing what I love in a way where I think I can be the most, be of the most value and the most service. And having had a history, I did not want to repeat the mistakes I made particularly in the interpersonal relationships and the choices that I made along the way in terms of who I would place trust in, who I would make a decision to to share with and become vulnerable. I made a number of decisions, you know, over 20 years ago in my professional relationships while owning my own business, where in retrospect, I gave my power away. Shadow work for me today is the business of understanding the proclivity I have for that and why, and then to not let it regulate my professional relationships today and to protect what my coach likes to tell me is to, to not let somebody shit on your gold. (laughs) That's the language that I get from them. And I, I love that language because I have a long history of letting people do that. And then also the, the antithesis of that, which is self-will run wild autonomy, individuality, and power going to my head and me making a mess of things and, and swinging by sanity on a pendulum, you know, moving, moving to these two extremes. Um, Shadow work today is allowing my pendulum to, to just float in the center. And I'm enjoying that experience. It's taken me to get to my early fifties to get there, but that's the best way for me in just a couple of moments to talk about what shadow work means to me because it has great practical in the moment value. Mm. You found yourself being open and vulnerable in ways that ended up being detrimental to your well-being and then reacting, uh, overreacting and isolating your yourself from connectedness with others. And you're trying to find a middle ground. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm at least finding a way when there's an impulse to sway from peace to regulate how far that goes quickly. There's very practical criteria in my life now, alarms on that go off, lights on the dashboard, so to speak, that go off. If I'm sensing, you know, some of those um, old triggers, so to speak, and, and really trying to observe them before making a decision about what I'm going to do. I guess one practical outcome is I'm far less impulsive today than I ever was far less impulsive. Mm -hmm. 
uh, I can say that impulsivity in, in that whole spectrum probably described is probably a fair way of describing what it was like owning a business as a very young man. It became a, 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 a laboratory for seeing my impulsivity. All of that makes so much sense to me. I mean, Andy, you say you brought up this concept of self-will run riot a couple of times. And it strikes me in a different way every time you say it. But what I'm thinking of now is how, because of course, you know, if we're talking about our shadows, the ego and the shadow evolve simultaneously with one another, right? Where your ego, your identity, the face you put forth to others contains certain beliefs about yourself, certain values, certain ways of being, and your shadow contains everything that at some level, especially the unconscious level, you don't believe is appropriate for you to be, that is denied or is not accepted by you or your family or your social circle. And you're talking about that first step of just acknowledging that you have those impulses, which any, any under acknowledged impulse finds a way to escape and loose itself like a little demon out in the world. That's psychoanalysis 101 when you repress <laughs> yeah. something that comes back with a vengeance, right? So, yeah. So, it seems so important to acknowledge those tendencies that we have, you know, not to pretend that they're not part of us because they are. And if you don't want them to have control over you, you must see them for what they are. You have to acknowledge them, which seems almost an oxymoron, right? Like if, oh, if I just, you'd think if you didn't, you know, give those thoughts too much credence, then their power would disappear. But no, they, they live in there. <laughs> They've made a cozy little home. And I'm struck, Andy, by what you said about being able to respond with speed, because that's something that I have been working on with my therapist. He is trying to manage my expectations about, you'll always have triggers, like, the goal is not to cease to have triggers. It's to be able to, to change state quickly from that reactivity, that place of reactivity and to recognize it. Um, and then to come back to your baseline faster. Yeah. And that can express itself, Lucia, in, in a few different ways, you know, um, in, in my case, my natural inclination is to go fast and I've had to learn how to slow down. For others, I would imagine fear or apprehension can precede an action and their, their, their effort, their interest or line of inquiry is how do I clear the fear and get to the decision I need to make? It's amazing how we can see such a, a wide spectrum of expression just in that area alone, in the, the internal dialogue as well as the observable actions associated to the internal dialogue in violence you know we can we can see the transition very often from people contemplating to that moment just before they begin to enact something in the physical and when you're trained or conditioned to observe that that's that's an opportunity for for us to respond to an imminent threat. We see that. Not everybody sees that. But the point I'm trying to make is that the more that we become attuned to these kinds of things, I think the more capacity for self-regulation we acquire. And that journey in and of itself has just been wonderful. 
at least for me. I'd say it's been wonderful, a wonderful for me too, but it's also sucked. <laughs> Sorry, Alicia, <laughs> go on. Oh, it does suck. Mm-mm. Doing self-work is difficult and annoying. Um, there's a wonderful story that that makes me think of by an Aikidoist. I think it was Terry Dobson sensei, but I wouldn't swear to that. He was studying in Japan, a man who later became a, a, a widely widely respected Aikido teacher here in America was studying in Japan as a young man and going to the dojo like five, six, seven days a week, just living, living and breathing martial arts. And he was on the train home one evening and there was a man who was drunk and belligerent in the train car with him, harassing people, getting in people's faces. And this Aikido student thinks to himself, I'm going to save the day. Like, this is my opportunity. I have been training. I'm going to like deal with this dude. And he stands up to go walk down the train car. And before he can get there, a little old man comes up to this drunk guy and starts talking to him in a calm voice and helps him sit down and um, is listening to him and connected to him and starts to de-escalate, you know, the belligerence that the drunk was showing up with. And this Aikido student had this profound revelation that he wrote about years later. This is from one of his books, realizing that what he had seen the old man do was real Aikido far more than what he had been planning, the intervention that he had been planning to try to make. And is the that story is so cool. Is is the idea there that the intervention that he was planning mm-hmm. to make was a physical one? Yeah. Was to like kind of force this drunk man to sit down to physically like strong arm him into being regulated. Okay. Yeah. That's a good life lesson. <laughs> yeah. I think about that story all the time. And I think about it in terms of what, what I do as a mediator and a facilitator, because I think all the time, all the time, like 80% of my work is about boundaries, you know, cause you're working, when you're working in conflict, you're working right up the edge of what's possible and what's not possible with the processes and the people who are in the room. In fact, you're working with people most of the time who think who have not found resolution possible. So you are like trying to push by two inches, the boundary of, of possibility do you want um, to like briefly explain the construct of the mediation work that you do, like what that looks like and what is an example of something that might someone might bring to you or what the structure looks like? Sure. So the type of mediation that I do, there are a number of different types of mediation. We do mediation outside of the realm of, of litigation and Uh, and arbitration. So if you've encountered mediation, dear listener, uh, in a legal context, what I do is probably very different. Uh, I do something called facilitative mediation. And the key to facilitative mediation is that the mediators are entirely invested in empowering the clients or participants to make their own choices and supporting their self-determination and their self-expression and ability to 
make requests and offers that will work for them rather than other types of uh, mediation and judicial processes where the uh, the mediators or the uh, arbitrators or the judges are making suggestions, uh, determinations, uh, interventions of other kinds. Uh, the type Which of mediation- is so cool because in a sense, you're not just me, you're, you're teaching is what you're doing. You're showing people that the capacity already lives within them and offering them some skills and tools to develop their capacity in real time with one another. Ideally, yes. Yeah, yeah ideally, you're right. <laughs> best From case, a theory best based. Case <laughs> yes. Yeah, you are you are trying to basically um the mediators are trying to to substitute for skills, intra intrapersonal skills that the clients lack, which is which is why I say you're always working at the edge of what's emotionally and psychologically possible. Frequently, frequently I'm all the time I'm being asked to make determinations about um, whether something is appropriate for our style of mediation. Uh, people will say, you know, making determinations about whether people are going to be able to show up in good faith, whether people are competent to negotiate their own their own outcomes. Uh, for example, we had done intake with two different people for determining whether or not to go forward with the mediation. And this was a, a parent and adult child. And there had been a history of domestic violence against the, by a grown son against his mother. And both of them, both of them had expressed that they were comfortable, they felt safe and comfortable meeting. But from what we had heard of the history of emotional manipulation and codependence, we as mediators were not comfortable that we, when I say we, we always use a co-mediator role. There are always two mediators in a room. We were not comfortable that we had the capacity to recognize and intervene in the patterns of codependence and harm that this pair of people we weren't. We didn't think that we could bring what they needed to, to do what we considered to be good work together. You know, which is our completely based on our determination, like our thoughts about what a safe relationship looks like, our thoughts about like what a positive outcome is. Yeah. How about just saying um, in the meeting, like that's explosive what you're having to manage there, and I just want to absolutely. throw this in because you're 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 doing it. You are working at the edge of transformation, helping someone in real time, you're guiding people in the most functional way that they can express getting their needs met in this setting, because obviously people are there to get their needs met uh, as a function of solving a problem. It sounds like just to, to merely, to merely arrive at the notion that, you know, we're walking into a hot situation here and recognizing the predisposing factors, the potential dysfunction and relationship dynamics that could show up, how that's going to interfere with the mediation. How are we going to nudge this in the direction of repair in the moment? Um, takes a lot of guts to do that. So well, well done. Good on you. You're right. It is explosive and, and it's so imprecise, you know, it's all based on human judgment calls. 
and we do a lot of of talking about bias and not as much as we should I think there's so much more to think and consider you're you're entering into a situation and I won't go down a rabbit hole about power and I promise myself this every episode but you're in a situation where your focus ideally is empowerment and autonomy. And at the end of the day, you, the royal you, still have the ultimate determination on whether or not those people can handle uh, their own autonomy and self-determination within that situation. So there, there is like a power dynamic there where you, and this isn't the world's worst power dynamic, right? But you have the capacity to cut someone off from a resource if the determination has been made that they are not capable of engaging in the process as it's defined. And I think that that's helpful because at some level that is a good boundary for you as a mediator and you as a person, you know, maybe you're wrong. Maybe those people can handle themselves in that situation, but there's also a question of, can I handle this in this situation? But that's, that's so tough, right? Because the people who are, the most dysregulated, who have the least skills, who have the greatest history of violence, are also probably the people who are most in need of support in resolving their conflict, right? Like if they had all these skills, they really wouldn't need too much external intervention. They would be able to come up to one another in a peaceful manner and speak their truth and offer what it means to them and find a resolution that carried the other person in mind. But God, we all suck at that, at least at some level, right? Like, like you were saying, like, this is a theoretical, perfect world idea. And I meet so few people who, at least in practice, do engage in that, like, will come up to me, little old me, and say, like, Lev, we have conflict. Here's what happened from my perspective. Here's what I'd like to ask of you. And be able to engage in that back and forth. Like I'd say over the last 10 years, it's maybe happened three times. And I know people have more beef with me than that. <laughs> I know they're holding out. <laughs> yeah, I, I think people lose track of the fact that resolving conflict through mediation or through restorative justice processes or through these sort of like more oh, touchy-feely, like woo-woo kind of, not that they are, but like that field of, of conflict resolution, I think people think they should be easier than judicial, like going through uh, some sort of process of um, either formal or informal. When I say judicial processes, I mean any situation where someone has the power to decide. So that might be an HR department making a, a personnel determination, or that might be the board of a nonprofit deciding to to fire somebody or, or what have you. Um, or it might be your grandfather making the determination about who gets invited to Thanksgiving. <laughs> I, and I think people expect mediation to be easier than that. It is certainly less time and money than going through a formal court system. Right. But the truth about mediation and restorative justice is it's actually harder than letting somebody else just make a decision about who's right and who's wrong. I have to tell you what I'm thinking as I'm listening to you, Lucia. I mean, it, there's data on this, but um, I'm not going to make reference to it. It's It has been my experience that most people 
who wind up in long-term psychiatric care in our justice system. In other words, they're found not guilty by reason of insanity for some kind of a felony, or they've made a deal for that kind of outcome as opposed to prison time. When they see, after they come to the hospital setting for long-term psychiatric care in satisfaction of what would arguably be a sentence under the criminal code, the sentencing guidelines, even though they're not in uh, a prison and have been acquitted of their crime as a function of their mental illness. I can't help but think about what they all say. I wish I had just done the prison time. I, I wish I had just done the seven years, eight years, 10 years, because I would have been out by now. And I'm still here 15 years later, 20 years later, 25 years later. And where the requirements of the person in psychiatric hospital in terms of active treatment or for those who are there for competency services, in other words, competency restoration or competency evaluation, the demands of a human being in those settings are enormous compared to the demands placed upon a human being in prison. So I'm not surprised at the phenomena that while someone thinks they're going to avoid the discomfort of the courtroom by coming to restorative justice, or they're going to avoid the discomfort of prison by going to the, the cushy hospital, they get there and find out, uh-oh, this I, I was wrong. Now I have to be put in touch with um, things that I have been avoiding uh, in me personally. Now an antagonist in my life is across the table from me with another advocate, so to speak, and we, gotta, we have to go down this road. I, I think it's so interesting that so many people arrive at that conclusion. And I, I thank you so much for your description of the reality of it, because it gets sold as something that it isn't very often. These, these kinds of services for human beings, they're sold by administrators or bureaucrats as an alternative, a less cushy alternative. And it's like jumping into a vat of acid. They had no idea until they get there. And then the people who work in the environment in that space have to manage that phenomena as well as the core responsibility. So thank you for what you do, Lucia. I, I don't know if maybe, maybe the video will make the public, but I, I loved your physical expression there. It looked like you felt validated. Yeah, yeah. thank you. I do feel validated. And that's such an interesting comparison because, and you're absolutely right. It's the, the self-work, like we were saying about ourselves at the beginning in our own journeys with coaching and therapy and, and how much it sucks to work on ourselves. But, and one thing that it makes me think about is that is the, the voluntary nature of what I do versus um, committal and the difference, one of the main hurdles or things that we encounter with that difficulty where we get people in a space and they've said, they've said they want this, they've said they want the restorative process, or they've said they, they want mediation. They have expressed voluntary engagement with those things. And then we discover that they are not uh, actually available for what the process really is. They're available for what they had assumed or imagined the process was. And it sounds yeah. like the people um, committed in psych psychiatric care had maybe some of them made a choice or made like a voluntary decision in a similar way to have not, not committed to the thing that they thought they were committing to. 
And I guess the main difference is in mediation, when that comes up, we just say, sorry, like, we can't help you. If, if you are not here voluntarily for what this actually is, this is not the service for you. Right, right. In I, other words, I the, wonder. Go ahead, Lev. Sorry, go on. No, no, no. I wonder, one, if it would be useful to provide like a five minute video for just like master cuts, an example of what this process looks like for people, because even within like when I did the 40 hour training, I didn't really understand it until I saw the demonstration, the example, the role play. And even after the role play, I didn't understand it until I witnessed live mediation. So I think one, there is a misunderstanding about what the process involves. Um, and in the realm of like kind of shadow work, if I quote unquote, give up my power and I let you know, you, Lucia, make a decision for me, I may not like the decision that you've made. And that's the thing that I have to live with is like, you did this. I don't like what you did to me. You're across the table for me and you have more power. And I can hold that resentment of you forcing an outcome upon me for the rest of my life. But there's this aspect of shadow work and of mediation and of some other voluntary processes where I must be reminded that the power lives within me and that some of the the adversary the enemy that i would like to see in the other actually lives within me i have to take responsibility for my own decisions my own actions everything that i've avoided seeing because i pushed off on other people it turns out i did some of that i am that i can imagine because i've been in this situation of doing every single thing possible to avoid needing to acknowledge that some of my problems are my fault, that some of the evils I see in the world are contained within me. Like, I do not want to believe that about myself. And I think that happens, you know, so microcosmically where, you know, maybe I'm at a mediation table with someone I have a dispute with. And in my head, I've constructed this whole story about how this person has wronged me. They trespassed on my yard. They stole these objects from me. They were hostile when I tried to engage with them. I get this beautiful story of the person as an enemy. And when the mediator looks at me and invites me to like make another offer that I need to step outside of this narrow, confined realm of possibility that I found myself in, I must at least acknowledge in some way that I'm doing this. There cannot be a dispute without two people. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like that person has needs, I have needs. Of course, it makes sense that sometimes our needs are going to butt up against one another. But to be forced to acknowledge the conclusion that maybe I'm not being fair, or maybe I'm not being giving, or maybe I'm the one who's holding back, you know, that's tough. That involves a total restructuring of how I see myself, at least in that tiny way. Um, you know, this like, why is it so hard for people to apologize kind of thing, right? It's, it's little examples of all kinds of things that are similar to that. And I frequently wish as a mediator, I'm offering like single, single services, like, um, isolated services, not long-term, but I frequently wish that I could like prescribe six weeks of therapy before someone comes to the mediation table, just to learn to own that stuff. Right. Because I mean, when you talk about a victim mindset, you're talking about family systems theory and you're talking about uh, like the rescue triangle, um, the victim, villain, rescuer, family, frequently a family dynamic. 
And sometimes, sometimes it is enough for a mediator to be able to use all of our skills, the, the reframing, the normalizing, the fractionalizing, the restating, like all the things. Sometimes that is enough to help somebody get just one step outside of that mindset. And sometimes it's not because that's powerful, powerfully ingrained mental positioning. It's just brilliant. Brilliant uh, observations, Lucia. I, I knew you guys would brilliant. love each other. I knew yeah. you guys would love each other. Yeah. <laughs> um, why don't we take a, a short break? Uh, there's some uh, thoughts I'd like to talk about offline, and then we can recover. Cool. Okay. If uh, we weren't doing a podcast recording, I would probably ask Lucia how the hell they were. You know, what what interpersonal dilemmas are they tossing around about the ideas of relating? Maybe we can get there at the end. <laughs> yeah, you should do a check out rather than check in. You know, I don't hate that. Okay, this quote, it's from the Meeting the Shadow book that I've been reading. Uh, it's from the introduction by the... Um, editors, uh, Connie Zweig and Jeremiah Abrams. Uh, what is the shadow? Essentially, a cluster of personality traits that developed alongside the ego. The shadow holds all qualities that don't fit our self-image, including what kinds of behaviors are not permitted by our society, especially our immediate family and culture. Whatever is rejected by the ego lives within the shadow, our not self. Desires, emotions, myths, not all of these are negative traits. Our shadows contain our most childlike parts, emotional attachments and neuroses, but also our undeveloped talents, gifts, and the depths of the soul that make us most universally human. I, essentially, they're talking about within our shadow, everything, everything lives about the person we have not become. Uh, the person we're afraid to become or the person we have not yet become. It's like a storehouse of evolutionary possibilities. Uh, and if you're kind of thinking um, from a mystical sense, it's kind of where everything that could ever exist already exists in like an unmanifested form. So what the quote, and I don't know if the rest of the quote is going to talk about integration, but what the quote implies to me as someone who is newly diving into the category of shadow work, what I feel when I hear that quote are all of the parts of me that I'm in the process of, or will ultimately be faced with the responsibility to integrate so I can be the thing that constantly transforms and steps away from being content with who I am. And all I can say is that it's it's not easy, and I absolutely adore Lucia's language about being at the edge of someone's transformation in the moment. Man, like you're confronting your own shadow and the shadow of people coming into that setting to navigate very very tough issues. Like I don't even think the justicism is justice system is as deeply aware as you are about exactly what those meetings are and what you're trying to solve. And to be frank, it's probably among the most noble kinds of work there is in the world, and no one will write about it and talk about what's happening in those rooms where 
hopefully in the data, so to speak, people are walking away from there, at least resolved on some kind of issue that could have found its way into the justice system, but was resolved at a lower level. And they may not even be able to fully appreciate the implications of what just happened until years later. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, negativity that they were spared from, trauma that they were spared from as a result of the outcome. And there you were as an alchemist, you know, in the Jungian sense, you know, trying to make all of this work like a great jazz improviser or artist. And so few people can probably appreciate that, Lucia. So uh, again, you know, what, what, what you're doing is so very important and the level of awareness that you bring to it because we know there are people in that game in the same way there are people in behavioral health game. They don't have a fucking clue what's going on. And, and while their intent is beautiful, there are a lot of people out there with graduate degrees who are engaging in services that very often uh, attendant level people, you know, people without formal education who are at the edge of it have to provide some feedback to those, those folks like, you know, Hey, Whoa, back up, slow down. <laughs> yeah, super accurate. And I also notice Andy, um, I can tell that you like Lucia because you're comparing them to people that you respect, which I think is like another shadow work thing. You know, when we see traits in other people, not just that we resent, but that we admire, that's pointing to something within ourselves. And I know it was your father, right, Andy, who was a noteworthy jazz improviser. And I can't think of a higher compliment for you to pay someone than comparing them to your father. Oh my I goodness. know how meaningful so that I, is to you. <laughs> yeah. So thanks. Thanks for pulling my shadow into the light, Lev. But uh, I'm not going to disagree with you. Uh, I, I can't say I was conscious of that observation, but you know, it, it sounds, it sounds more than reasonable. And um, it certainly goes to that part of the quote where there's, there's shadow material that is not so awful in terms of things that still have yet to integrate, but images and, and, and archetype ideology that's deep in there. And there's, there's some merit to what you're saying about my association to Lucia and my dad. It's fascinating to have, at least for me, this kind of conversation. Lev, something that I value about you so much is the way you demonstrate that you know people. You know that one of my favorite experiences in the whole world is to be observed and known. And that was such a beautiful, that interaction that you and Andy just had was so incredibly generous and intimate in terms of uh, you offering something that you, a way that you know him. We're doing this now. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, It reminded me, talking about music, there's a quote about facilitation um, by someone that I took a training with at one point who talks about the facilitator as a conductor of music. I could absolutely see that. And I love, there, there is a lot of notions about archetypes that are somewhat esoteric and difficult to understand but the easiest way that I imagine them is like the facilitator as a conductor kind of is an archetype it's like an idea a collection of traits about who we would like to become and Lucia you and I have some 
right now they're pipe dreams about facilitating together, about teaching classes, leading courses, offering training materials, which is something, Andy, that you and I are currently doing together, I think in a slightly different capacity than the way Lucy and I have imagined it, but there's still so much overlap about resolution of conflict and the way that that involves an exploration of the self and a, I won't say mastery of the self because self-mastery is arrogant as a colleague of ours has pointed out before, but maybe a knowing of the self, a commitment to always knowing about the self and always learning new things about the self. I, I want to go back to something Lucia said about facilitating as a conductor, because I think it's so important. When you're a mediator or a facilitator, or even a crisis interventionist, which is our background, Lucia, Lev and me, you're not just a conductor of the band. You're a conductor of a band where the band is constantly changing every hour. And there are new people showing up and you don't know what instrument they're bringing and you don't know if they can fucking play at all. So then, then they sit down. Some folks can play, some can't. You have to navigate what sheet of music are we going to play from. Now we have to arrange the instrumentation. Now we have to quickly assess where everyone's competency is and the performance on the instrument. And now we got to try to make music out of this thing. And when, generally speaking, when everybody starts on one, it sucks. So we have to we have to create a baseline and then work from there. And you know, I think we're all grateful when we're in that role, when everyone shows up knowing how to play and the music is good. But most of the time, it's uncomfortable because we see and know what the music can be, but what we're listening to in the meantime is not that. And we keep going back though on the hope and optimism and belief that the music can get better. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what comes to mind when I hear that, you know, it, it, uh, because I think the word facilitator, the secondary meaning I have for that is, okay, so someone's up in front of a classroom reading from a PowerPoint. They really don't add any depth to it. What you're doing is so much more. I don't know if facilitating is really a word that thoroughly captures what you're doing. It's like you're, you, you are conducting, but you're conducting with a band and a musical genre and instruments that you have no control over. And you have to try to make that work all the time. And I don't think anybody can thoroughly appreciate that unless you're doing it. Thank you. Absolutely. That reminds me really strongly of a conversation that I had recently with a friend who does, uh, he calls them skill groups. They're sort of like interpersonal and intrapersonal practice groups that meet in very various different contexts. And he and I were talking about the difference between having a, a skill group, basically like a communication practice session where you're just, you're talking, you're trying to use good skills and talking to one another, having one of those groups with people who are pretty well skilled or practiced or like familiar with their instruments to hold the metaphor versus with people who are brand new, which is a lot of what um, he does professionally. He goes into workplaces and offers organizational development to work teams that have never encountered these skills before. And we were talking about how there's, it's the difference between being like a high school band teacher or a middle school band teacher. Um, I started playing an instrument in fifth grade and that my teacher in that class 
is, you know, doing an entirely different job than the conductor of the Carnegie Hall Symphony. And that there are strengths, a group of people who are good at this stuff and practiced will often struggle to get messy. And we were talking about as, I I mean, facilitator is the word that that comes to mind for me, Uh, but as facilitators of a group of, of people who are practiced in this work, we want them to be messier because they know the structures to protect themselves and to use the right language. And I'm making air quotes um, or use the, you know, the feeling words or whatever that, that sometimes that that becomes a self-protection against getting deep into the muck of what's really real. Uh, Whereas groups never encountered uh, these skill sets in this work before get really messy, really fast to a point where it sometimes ceases to be productive. So just thinking, thinking about that, that is what we do as mediators or as facilitators in in that sense of um, being present is trying to offer just enough of the skill set that people can be messy without hurting themselves on that boundary. It's again, it's the like, you've got your comfort zone. It's the growth boundary. You've got your comfort zone and you've got your harm zone and you have this like thin little, little strip in between where you're uncomfortable, but you're still learning and growing and you're not being traumatized, trying to put people there without overshooting in either direction and screwing them up for life. Yeah. It's like Jenga or a house cards, you know, it takes someone incredibly self-regulated and skilled to want to put themselves in that moment over and over and over and over again. And, and God bless the middle school and the grade school band teachers, because they know going into this, they're never going to realize symphonic excellence, but they play within the boundaries with certain benchmarks in mind that set the stage for the person's evolution musically at the next level. And uh, what you said really describes that, you know? I did once have a 10-year-old say, look at this. And I turned around and he was standing on the back of a chair and jumped off and broke his arm. So not to underestimate elementary school teachers. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Look, watch me. Yeah. yeah. But it's true. It's completely true. One of the uh the principals that I work with, he's an elementary school principal now who came from the high school level before he got his uh administrative certification. And he is just he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. And he was like, the problems people come to me with in, in elementary school, like, oh, some kid pushed another kid or stole his lunch money or used a swear word to a teacher. Like if that kid doesn't have a knife, we don't have a problem. Like (laughs) just the, the scale of it's really worth having perspective. I had an interesting conversation with one of my coworkers about the perspective on problems, not to tell too much of her story, but she was, saying that she she grew up in a, a very violent home and she was like I judge threats based on this extremely high benchmark for what's actually dangerous and I sh- I was like that's so interesting because I grew up in a very safe home and I also have a pretty high benchmark for threat because I learned that the world is a safe place 
So both of us coming from opposite experiences, opposite histories of violence have ended up with this like quite high watermark for what worries us. When I hear that, Lucia, I don't know about you, Lev, but what I'm hearing is, Lucia, even though you grew up in a home where safety was a priority, it sounds like you arrived more at that conclusion personally through self-understanding than than anything else. And at least that's what I'm pulling out of that. Like, in other words, what you described is I learned the world was a safe place. The, the spectrum of observation about the world right now is pretty wide in terms of people feeling like it's safe or not, you know, oh, like yeah. I, I, I know for me, I know more now as I age about what makes me feel unsafe. I have a high benchmark for it too, or a threshold. Lev, I'm curious what your, your thoughts are here. I mean, this does seem to come back really well to that extraordinarily apt metaphor of a facilitator as a conductor. I really appreciate the nobility of the, the goal of being messy, how people use these self-protective traits that they've picked up in order to avoid getting messy. I see a lot of people who come from very safe uh, environments, and I'm not talking about you specifically, Lucia, but who are deeply conflict avoidant. Like that is a protective instinct that they've learned because they cannot handle how disruptive any level of conflict is. So they're peacekeepers, they're sacrificers, they're more, you know, they have a greater tendency toward codependency or um, like a compromise. Like I give up something, you'll give up something. But I, yeah, and I think in both cases, the self-protective instincts are what keep us from being messy. And there is something that needs to happen where you learn to understand that being messy helps you grow and learn. That the threat of not doing something right or well is not the equivalent threat to someone like punching you in the face. And I may know this at a certain level in my brain. I may acknowledge, of course, that's true, but that doesn't mean that I feel that it is true. It doesn't mean that my like somatic or neurological reaction is going to align with the idea that it is true. So I might get the same fear stepping into, oh no, my two friends are now having a dispute. My brain now feels threatened because I understand that this is going to be like interpersonally destabilizing. You know, I might be verbally attacked. I might be blamed. I might be shamed. I might be ostracized. And that threat feels equivalent to me as it might for someone who grew up in a violent place when someone is rushing at them with a knife. So how do I learn to become comfortable with things that really get me on my edge? Because I think there's also some work to be done about if I have a trigger, if everyone has a trigger, the idea isn't to get rid of the triggers, but the idea is to face the triggers in a way that keeps more harm from coming to me. Because I can't avoid all of my triggers for the rest of my life, just as I can't avoid my own shadow. It's still going to be right behind me. I had an incredible experience this summer that that made me think of. I was preparing to lead a 40-hour training completely on my own, in person for the first time since COVID, like all of these things. Uh, and I had developed some new material for it that dealt pretty heavily with racism. This was love. This was what we worked on together. Um, and I was just like very nervous about this training. And I was at the dojo uh, practicing Aikido. And since that particular weekend, we were doing knife practice and you use like wooden 
blunt wooden knives. And Sensei said, don't be afraid of the knife. The worst thing that can happen is you get cut. You'll never learn anything if you're afraid of getting cut. I had this light bulb moment about my anxiety about the training and my anxiety of handling the curriculum content that was about racism in particular. And I was like, oh, I am terrified of getting cut because this is sharp, hot material. And I'm also afraid of my trainees, you know, the the participants getting cut and it's paralyzing me. The first thing that you do in Aikido when you're learning to, to strike or to hit someone with a knife or with your open hand is uh, you pre- you don't move. You let someone strike at you and they'll stop before they hit you. And you experience what it feels like to learn not to be afraid of that so that you can react. And it's still so difficult to not flinch when someone, you know, but that's the practice, right? That's why you learn to, you learn to experience things that are frightening and to be able to react. I mean, the goal is to not flinch at all because that's bad news, martially speaking, you know, in a, like a, it's a journey. Um, and like you said, like reducing the trigger time down, reducing your reaction down. Lucia, you would love our friend, Tony Blauer. Um, Tony's entire system of self-defense is based on leveraging the power of the, the physiological startle flinch. After the flinch, how do you regulate quickly enough to do something protective very, very interesting stuff. And hearing you articulate it that way is, is so beautiful. It sounds like Aikido has been very influential in your worldview today. Absolutely. I started training when I was 14. I have learned many, many, many things through Aikido, but I think one of the most powerful was just the experience of being a, you know, 14, 15, 16 year old girl training with, I mean, huge grown men. And just the experience of confronting things that seemed unsafe and learning that I could handle them. We could do this for hours. Lev, I'd love to have Lucia back and spend more time uh, going down this road. I've certainly found it uh, enriching and, and delightful. And I'm so very grateful that Lev had the vision to make the associations and, and invite you to our program. Thank you so very, very much. Thank you. Lev has great taste in friends. Oh, gee whiz. Thank you. I do have great taste in friends. (laughs) And I'm really grateful that you made time to be here and that this was exactly as fun and vaguely educational as I thought it would be. All the other things that bring me joy about getting to talk with either one of you. Yeah, it sounds a little bit like we're closing out. I think in previous episodes, Andy and I have tried to leave our audience with some pearls of wisdom, but I'm wondering, I'm wondering if we have questions. Do we have questions that people might consider in the realm of facing fears or in shadow work or in self-exploration? You know, it makes me hearing you say that Lev makes me want to ask Lucia, Lucia, if there were a couple of core ideas you would want people to know about mediation and what it can offer if you had your pick what would you want to tell the world about its value and what would you want someone to know about before getting there the thing that's at the top of my mind 
is you're not going to get very far if you're afraid of getting cut. Like many things in life, mediation is hard. And God knows I understand being at a place where you're not willing to expose yourself to any more hurt, you know, where you're just done with that. But mediation is not going to work if, if you are too afraid of getting hurt to be uh, honest and available and to show up in good faith, the being willing to listen and consider other possibilities and to share honestly. Mediation, or at least facilitative mediation that I do, is about the self. I so want people to be able to express themselves and defend themselves without being destructive. We honor that journey. We, we honor that ethos that's ours. I feel like one final question is, is certainly in order. In your observation, if only one person embodies those attributes when coming to mediation and the other doesn't, is that still better than both not embodying any of those? Mm -hmm. Is that worse? than two people who don't want to get cut? Um, yes and no. So I would say that question of like, what do you do when there's good faith and one person is available to get cut and to really engage in the process and the other person isn't? It depends on whether the person who isn't is, is lashing out or has power over the other person or is in a position to hurt there are definitely people who are not available, who are self-enclosed, you know, who aren't harming the process. The process is still not going to be very successful, not potentially not successful at all if one person is closed off. But there's not necessarily harm going to be caused. And it might even be beneficial for the person who's open to have gotten that practice being open. Uh, it's an opportunity for them to experience trying to show up like that that might be beneficial to them. And there's also the potential that they be hurt. So that's, that's really what the mediator is there for, is to see that and to be able to intervene and ideally to, to stop harm being caused. And there's a whole can of worms there that I'm just going to like, I'm going to acknowledge the can of worms on the shelf that's about racism and transphobia and misogyny and things that a mediator might miss or not notice happening because of their own history and identity. But to just put that right back on the shelf, you are so right that the, the imbalance of good faith is one of the abiding problems of mediation. Um, and I would say, don't let that possibility of like scare you away from mediation. Right. Don't be afraid that you're the only one at the table who's willing to be there in good faith. And know that if you need to protect yourself, you need to protect yourself. And the mediators yeah, it, will do the best. I'm so glad you said it that way. It's an abiding problem in behavioral health care, too. Um, the notion, you know, for instance, our public safety and behavioral health co-responders that work together. So often, you know, they hear from lawmakers and administrators, de-escalation first, de-escalation first, yet very often they're in the face of someone who just does not give a shit and is, is, is going to be interested in carrying on in a way where the level of intervention that's going to be invested in is, is not going to work. And the problem is the pressure when we don't give our responders the freedom to make that determination and we constantly pressure them on doing something a certain way without relying on their judgment. 
The problem is it, it winds up diluting the investment in the de-escalation effort, and it causes people very often to wrongly conclude that there's no need for that because this person who's presenting this, this crisis behavior is either clearly being instrumental or de-escalation isn't going to work. And when we don't when we don't empower our folks to to make those decisions in in real time it, and and it can absolutely bias the the process you know the way that you've just described i i just i see the i see the the similarities there you know absolutely i would love to talk more about so many systems where we rely on experienced professionals making individual judgment calls essentially that have serious impacts on the lives and safety of others and the biases that they carry and the power dynamics that are in play there. And the competence dynamics and politics, Uh, you know, Lev and I come from different places on power and, and we find a place to meet and connect on that. But I, I have to say that this conversation is so meaningful because the people who are making decisions about programs where people are charged with duties and responsibilities to respond to someone's crisis. The people making those decisions have vision and they have money. They don't have meaningful planning that includes the merits of people on the ground. And the people on the ground are upset about that. And that is in the institutional setting, that's in prisons, that's in public safety agencies. And we have to, uh, we have to work to level that. Not level hierarchy, but level the bias. We need order in these response systems. People need to be dispatched. People need to be, um, resources need to be in place. So this is repeatable and predictable, but it's so nice and refreshing to hear someone so aware of them in their world as you are. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. If there were no human variables in my work, one, (laughs) I would be out of a job and two, it would be easy. It would be boring. It'd be so boring. I probably wouldn't be doing it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. And uh, we look forward to meeting with you again. We'll see you. Thank you. This was an absolute pleasure. And I look forward to the programming that you and Love are planning. Yeah. We're working on a, an education item known as Everyday Crisis. Well, well, I'm so excited for the performance. Excellent. Thank you so much. Yeah. And- have a great thank afternoon. you all for listening. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, folks, for sticking with us. It's been a delight to be with you and to to offer the creativity between Lev and Lucia and me to to all of you. We hope you get something out of it, and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thanks for coming to episode five of Snakes in the Garden. This is Lev, and you've been listening to Snakes in the Garden podcast. If you have questions or feedback for myself or for Andy, you can email us at snakesinthegardenpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.